A reading from Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your commitment through your spirit to bear the fruit of Jesus' life in us. Though that looks different in each of us, we pray that in each of us it looks like Christ. Uh, thank you that you are more committed to that than we are. <laughs> uh, that you are relentless about both holding us fast and reproducing the life of Jesus in us. So help us to be open to that this morning and uh, receptive to what you have to say to us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in the last sermon in this sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. There have been nine different uh, descriptions or aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, which is Christ's life reproduced in us. Uh, and just kind of, because you probably haven't heard this before in the last nine or ten weeks, I'm going to read this passage again. It's on the front of your insert. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now we've said this, the fruit is singular, but these are sort of like nine different aspects or nine different descriptions. And today we're looking at self-control. And this strikes me as an aspect that is sort of like an ingredient in all of these. Self-control is required for uh, faithfulness, gentleness, patience, peace, kindness, all that. It's sort of like you might have different varieties of Christmas cookies. They all have sugar in them, probably, unless they don't taste good. But uh, they, good Christmas, good tasting Christmas cookies tend to have sugar in them. It's a common ingredient. Self-control is a common ingredient to all these other aspects, as we'll see. This self-control is required in part for the bearing of all this, uh, this the rest of this fruit, self-control. So, Coming into the English world famously through Hamlet was this phrase. This is on the inside of your insert here where it says the freedom of self-control. Polonius, the actor in Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 3, says, This above all, to thine own self be true. Be true to yourself. And it must follow as night follows the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. Be true to, above all, be true to yourself, and it follows that you will not be false to anyone else. To your own self be true. And so today we're kind of asking the question, is that a good idea? To your own self be true. It's sort of taken as an obvious truth in many quarters, but Shakespeare does something interesting. That is, that is in the mouth of Polonius, who is called in Hamlet the rambling fool. So, it's caused literary critics over the years to say, is he saying this is a foolish statement, or is it an ironic statement, a wise statement in the mouth of a fool? Uh, should we be true to ourselves? This has been taken up many times in the history of literature, including in the, the famous Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale from 1844 called The Snow Queen. Everybody here is familiar with The Snow Queen, right? You know The Snow Queen? Okay, some of you. Actually, almost everybody's familiar with The Snow Queen. If you've been a parent child, a grandparent, a babysitter, 
an aunt or an uncle in the last 10 years. Because about 170 years after Hans Christian Andersen, Disney picked it up, remade it, and called it Frozen. So Frozen is a remake of Hans, kind of a loose remake of Hans Christian Andersen. And I was talk, dialoguing with my wife this week about the details of Frozen, because I haven't seen it for a minute, um, for a long time. And she's like, be careful. I think you're all, the first service laughed too, because you know what she was talking about. She's like, you're on holy ground with Frozen, right? People love this movie. Don't criticize it. And like, I'm not going to criticize Frozen. It's a good movie. I like it-ish. Uh, and um, I do. And it, so many kids' movies, especially uh, by that particular manufacturer of movies, um, Disney, uh, over the years, and not just Disney, but oh, it's like the, the, the typical Western narrative of self-discovery and self-actualization, self-realization. Like you really discover who you are by one way, looking inside and discovering what's there and whatever you find, whatever desire, you let it go and you do it and you pursue it and you do it no matter what the consequences are to you or anybody else and that's how you be true and authentic to yourself. Find what's inside and work it out. That's the storyline. And it looks like that's how Frozen is gonna go for part of it because Queen Elsa, and I haven't, so... I know you can correct me on the details. I haven't seen it for years, but um, although I do remember part of it, I'll talk about the end very clearly. Queen Elsa, uh, she throws off the shackles and constraints of society because uh, she's an outlier uh, in that she can't control her tendency to freeze things. Um, and so she goes away from everybody and kind of puts everything behind. Finally, she can live as she wants to live and sings the, the famous song that all the kids were singing years ago, Let It Go. Probably someone, we could probably create all the lyrics right here if we had enough time, right? Let it go. I'm not going to sing it. Let it go. Can't hold back anymore. Let it go. Let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go, let it go. Now, it did occur to me, I mean, that's a super, like every kid in the world was singing that song. And I do remember like 2014 thinking, is it great that millions of little kids are screaming at the top of their lungs? No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Now, I don't know if that's greatest discipleship, but they are catching the beginning of the impetus of that movie. When else is like the common self-actualization narrative. I'm going to be free of all constraints. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. But in her freedom, this is where Frozen takes a different turn from a lot of these movies. She destroys things and she sees that she destroys them. She ends up uh, freezing her hometown of uh, Arendelle. And... She begins to see the effects of her selfishness and her sister Anna comes to her in this ice palace that Elsa's created, which is actually an ice prison that she's made for herself, although unwittingly. Anna tells her of all the things she's done and how it's destroyed people and Elsa is beside herself. And so then you have this back and forth where they're singing the reprise of uh, the For the First Time in Forever where Anna and Elsa are singing back and forth. And Anna is singing the lines of the original song. She's like, because for the first time in forever. But then Elsa replies, oh, I'm such a fool. I can't be free. Anna's like, you don't have to be afraid. Elsa says, the no, no escape from the storm inside of me. Anna, we can work this out together. I can't control the curse, says Elsa. 
We'll reverse the storm you've made, says Anna. Oh, Anna, please, you'll only make it worse. Don't panic, says her sister. But Elsa says, there's so much fear. So she begins to see the, the consequences of letting it go, <laughs> of no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And of course, the, the end of the movie, Elsa finally learns that love and service toward people instead of freedom from them for yourself is the pathway to freedom and casting out fear. It's a really redemptive picture. So I want to encourage Frozen. And in the first service, I didn't notice this till after the sermon, the first song we sing after communion has the word frozen in it. And I totally didn't know that. I promise you, I did not put that in there. That's just too cutesy for a sermon. We tend not to do that. It's just there. I'm sorry. Um, to thine own self be true. Is that a good idea? Before we answer that question, the Bible asks another question. Which self are we talking about? Here's what we're getting at this morning. The Holy Spirit cultivates self-control in God's people for our freedom and the good of other people. The Holy Spirit cultivates self-control in us for our freedom and the good of God's people. Self-control here, I put it in your insert, defined as the control of self. <laughs> the focus is we're, our self is being controlled by us and by the Spirit, by the Spirit of Christ. That is the right ordering of loves and desires. The correct ordering or reordering of loves and desires. Sometimes this looks like saying no. Sometimes it looks like redirecting. Sometimes it looks like saying yes. The right ordering of loves and desires. Internal uh, dispositions and affections of the heart. Uh, in the jumbled reality of who we actually are in life. So where we're going is this. We're going to look at uh, the freedom of self-control or, or why it's needed, why it's difficult because the, we live in a world of autonomy, why it's good for the sake of others and why it's possible in your life because of the power of Jesus. So let's look at the freedom of self-control. Why is self-control good? Well, because it empowers us to be who we are recreated to be in Jesus. Self-control is the always constant ingredient that empowers us to be who we were recreated to be in Jesus. And though it's self-control, it's not like I'm doing it by myself. This is a spirit-cultivated reality that controls ourself. I'm being controlled, and that's a good thing. 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to walk through some texts. Again, in this sermon series, we've had a lot of text because we're taking one word, so we want to situate that accurately in the rest of the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the apostle writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you're in Jesus by faith, this says you are already new creation or renewed creation. That's a real reality that's real, but it's not experienced fully here yet. It will be one day, but it's not experienced fully here yet, but you are already part of new creation. It's a positional reality. You have a status. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter what you feel like. You have a status as a son or daughter of God. We might say, I don't feel like he's my father. Good news, doesn't matter. He's your father. That's your status. Now, it takes some use, getting used to in our life. We're always getting used to that reality that God is a good, loving father. It's harder for some of us than others, whatever, but that's our actual status. 
He is our father. We are son or daughter. We have a completely secure future. Right now, the love of God is for you. The favor of God is toward you. The smile of God is on you. That's what it means to be new creation. You may carry around all sorts of guilt. You may come before the Lord and feel like, oh, I'm so guilty. That's of your own making. That's a self-generated feeling that you have completely have the privilege to lay aside because in Christ, he has taken away your guilt. You may come before the Lord and say, I feel so ashamed and exposed. The eyes of God are seeing me. That's your own self-generated reality. You have the privilege to lay that aside because in Christ, your shame has been completely covered. To be part of new creation means our citizenship is not first as a Hoosier. Though nobody says that. No, it's not first as an American. It is, we are first citizens of heaven, as the book of Philippians says. And then we await the arrival of our home as we sojourn here. We could say it two ways. We could say, we're not home yet. We could more accurately say it. Our home is not here yet, but it's coming. That is where our actual citizenship is. That means we're always kind of going to feel out of step in this chapter, in this world. That's because our citizenship isn't here. We are resident aliens, as the scripture says. That's what it means to be part of new creation. That doesn't mean we can't be patriotic or be thankful for the country we live in. It's just not our first citizenship. It means our identity or our self-conception, Christian, is first not, not your gender or your age or your race or your vocation or your situation in life. Those all may be important, interesting things. They're not your first identity or the way you ought to conceive of yourself first. The first identity is united to Jesus, new creation. That's the reality. And that's how we ought to regard one another too in the body of Christ. So that's the reality. If you're in Christ, new creation. There's also another deeply experiential reality the Bible is really soberingly clear about. Romans 7, this is the Apostle Paul. This is like honest confession time from Paul. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody been there, right? Verse 16. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now... It is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. (laughs) For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin who dwells in me. Paul sounds like he has multiple personality disorder right here. Not to make light of that, that's a real disorder. But he's, it's like two different people are inside of Paul. It's like, on the one hand, I want to do what is right. On the other hand, there's a deep desire to do what is evil. Those are both wrestling inside of me. And even when he says it, verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Like we would never let our kids get away with a, a reason like that. Why did you do that? When me, it was a sin that dwelled in me, Right? They're kind of disowning it. <laughs> but this saying, I'm disowning it and owning it at the same time. It feels like me doing it because it is me doing it. It feels like a desire I have because it is a desire I have to do what is evil and what is good. 
So this is getting at this biblical teaching which is easy to miss, easy to forget, and critical to hold on to of what we call the flesh. What the Bible here calls the flesh. That is the, that part of us until death, even the most kindly, Jesus-loving, wonderful people among us, <laughs> part of us until death will remain in defiance of Jesus' loving authority. Am I talking about you? Yes, and me. And the best Christian you know, part of us until glorification, death or Christ returns before we die, whatever, until glorification, will remain in defiance to Jesus' loving authority. And that's what Paul's identifying right here. And this flesh, by the way, has nothing to do with like skin and bone flesh, other than that's the battleground of where all this happens. Unfortunately, this language of flesh and the way Paul uses it very flexibly has some Christians over the years have thought the Bible teaches that like the spirit is good and the body is bad. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not necessary to think that. It's just not true. But the point of this is even as a Christian who is new creation, part of you, part of me is uh, in defiance of Jesus' loving authority. Now, you don't have to be a big fan of that reality. You may not like it. Doesn't matter. This is what the Bible teaches. And it's what we experience on a daily basis. This week, have you not said, why did I say that? Why did I react to my friend or my spouse or my child with anger? If I had to thought two more minutes, I wouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? Your flesh, that's why. There's part of you in defiance of Jesus' authority to be tender and gentle. I get that. And this part, this, this part of us, the flesh, help, critical to know this, it will never get better. It will be in defiance of Jesus' loving authority until the day we die. It will never get better. One, your flesh will never one day wake up and say, I love Jesus now. I changed my mind. Its nature will never change until we die or until Christ returns. Now, fortunately, it can become weakened. This flesh can become weakened by what, you know, constant self-control with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit of Christ. Self-control, the Apostle Paul calls this putting flesh to death over and over and over again. This is the experience of the Apostle Paul writing this letter in his 50s. This is a guy who's walked with Jesus for a long time. Verse 21. Uh, again, this is dense theology. I know that we're just running through it. He uses the word law here. We tend to think of law as like the sixth commandment or like don't drive more than 70 on the interstate. This means more here a ruling power or ruling authority. So I'm just going to say it that way as I read through here. Here's his experience. He says, so I find it to be a ruling power that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the ruling power of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, that is in my flesh, the, the parts of my flesh, another ruling power waging war against the ruling power of my mind and making me captive to the ruling power of sin that dwells in my members or in my flesh. 
He's saying it's there. There's real things there, which this means is, the, the cash value of this is, if we just do or say or act on everything we desire, we will eventually be serving the ruling power of sin. If we just say, what's really there? And to be authentic to myself means to express it. We are going to be under the ruling power of sin. It means, friends, this is almost heresy in America. Some of your desires are wrong. Some of my desires are wrong. But what if I really feel it? Doesn't matter if you really feel it. We have desires that are twisted away from the loving authority of Jesus. And those desires feel authentic. You know why? They are authentic. They're really there. They're part of us. They're part of our flesh. But Paul realizes he's new creation and says, this part of my flesh is like a foreigner living in me, but it's really me. Uh, They are authentic and they are destructive. And I know many of you know this, but I think it's good to see the Bible so sober about our need to be controlled by the Spirit of Christ. Anger. You don't have a short fuse. You don't have a quick temper. You have a lack of self-control. Just want to be clear. Lust. Oh, you're not easily tempted. You're not aesthetic. You have a lack of self-control. Speaking for myself as well. It's self-control. Taking offense too easily. You don't have a sensitive conscience. You have a lack of self-control. Fear. Laziness, self-protection, consumption, out of more food, more alcohol, whatever. Um, the compulsion to look a certain way or be a certain way. All this, we hope we see the, the central ingredient of self-control in all of this. And I'm chief offender among us. Sometimes we need to hear this. Sometimes we know it too well. Because we've seen it really wreaked havoc in our own life and destruction in other people's lives. And we need to have the question, is there any hope And the answer is absolutely, absolutely. And that's, we're going to get to that in a second. But first, the Bible just lets us see the depths, lets us see the depths. You know, sometimes we think about Christianity as like, let's put on a pretty face and look good. (laughs) Romans knows nothing about that type of Christianity. Look at Paul's response in verse 24. He thinks of all this and he says, wretched man that I am. This is the apostle Paul. He's like, wretched man that I am. Paul, you're not that bad. Paul, relax. It's okay. Nope. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? If he's only looking at his own flesh, he's despairing. And then he brings himself back to the gospel. He preaches to his own soul. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the ruling power of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the ruling power of sin. That's my reality in this chapter. Does that mean I'm lost? No. Verse one of chapter eight, right? There's no chapter breaks in the original. What right follows after that is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the ruling power of the spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the ruling power of sin and death. But what if I don't have self-control? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What if I keep failing with lust? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What if I keep failing with anger? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's just stuck right there. Every spiritual writer and theologians I, I read on this this week said something like, we are so self-deceptive and so inclined to think our desires, what we naturally feel, are normal and we ought to authentically pursue them, that we must avail ourselves to what we've called in church history the means of grace, right? 
God's word. Let that be the authoritative word or else my desire is gonna be my authoritative word eventually. And it will seem right. It will seem authentic. It will seem true because it is authentic. It's just wrong. (laughs) We need this word. To avail ourselves of the means of grace of prayer where we place ourselves open before God and ask for his transforming spirit to do his work in our life. Where we avail ourselves to the means of corporate worship where we come together and we realign our ultimate priorities with other people saying, yeah, we're struggling too and you're not in this alone. So before we move on, I just want to pause and ask us, where do you need self-control? Maybe it's a way that's affecting one of these other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe it's something else. Let's do something radical. Let's ask the Lord to help us right there. It's remarkable how many times people struggle with stuff for weeks, months, years, and never actually ask the Lord right there to help. Many times I've talked to folks who said, well, you know, I asked the Lord to take away this desire, and it, didn't, it wasn't taken away. So I guess I keep acting on it. That's not how it works, guys. Those desires are uh, fomented or created from the flesh, which never gets better. If you want God, if you want those desires gone, you have to die. Right? Now, one day those desires will be gone. But what normally happens is those desires get what the theologians call mortified. They keep getting put to death. They keep getting weakened by spirit control of our life and pushing against them, putting them down, putting them to death over and over and over again so that over time they become so weakened that functionally we quit experiencing them as such desire. But you know, many of you know, like those desires can lay dormant for a long time and they're easily brought back to life because the nature of them doesn't change. But the good news is there can be substantial victory in life because of the weakening, the constant weakening of those desires. Where do you need self-control? Let's ask the Lord right there. Maybe it's with a particular person in your life, particular family member. Maybe it's with a particular sin pattern, Right? It doesn't help that we live in a world of autonomy. It makes it comp- much more difficult. And by the way, if you think that like, I'm, I am walk with Jesus for a long time, I feel like I should be over the self, need for self-control. Do remember the Apostle Paul, the writer of so many books of the New Testament, who knew Jesus more intimately probably than anybody here does or will, in his 50s writes, man, wretched man that I am. I see this deep in my own soul. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God because of Jesus. He, like we, live in a world of autonomy that underwrites this flesh all the time. First John 2, the Apostle John writes these words. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God continues forever. Let me just drill down on this for a second. Uh, This is what we might call a template verse for scripture. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. What you need to know that this word lust here is the word, Greek word desire with another word attached before it. So it's desire and over before it. So it's like over desires. 
These are desires that are inordinate, often not desiring the wrong thing, but desiring something okay in the wrong way, in a too strong way or a twisted way. Uh, asking more of something than God ever designed for it to give to us. That's an over-desire. So like the over-desires of the flesh. Okay, I said this was going to be confusing. This is certainly something to take up with the Apostle Paul someday when we see him in the new earth. In Romans 7, he uses the word flesh to mean the principle in us is resistant to God. Uh, oh, that's good, it's good, it's John. Anyway, so John's using it differently. Talk to Paul and John and say, why did you guys use the same word in a different way? Uh, flesh here actually means our body. <laughs> Not the sin principle. It's our body. That which feels good or satisfies physically or emotionally. So the over-desires of flesh could have to deal with food, sex, relaxation, stimulation, the psychological warmth of being known and loved, bodily sensations, emotional sensations, the privileging of novel stimuli in our environment. We like it, we like it, we like it. Excitement. Things that feel good and that uh, make us delighted. Uh, nothing wrong in and of itself with food, sex, relaxation, stimulation, the psychological whole feeling of being known and loved. We're created by God to experience all of those things. They are not wrong in and of themselves, but it's very easy to take them and make them inordinate desires. There's a difference between receiving something as a good gift and grasping it, having to have it, taking hold of it, chasing it, making it something that I must have. That turns it, in from a, that turns it from a delight to a lust, an over-desire. Over-desires of the eyes. This would have to do with beauty, story, idea, grandeur, splendor, breathtaking realities, right? Nothing in and of themselves, those were created to enjoy that. God gives us a beautiful world, right? Um, some people will say, oh, I, I just know that I'm made for the beauty of this, whether it's some sort of, sort of like art or some place, the beauty of the mountains. I love the mountains. I'm made for the mountains. I'm specifically called to the mountains. Like, yeah, everybody loves the mountains. It's beautiful. We're made for it. You're not an orchid, right? You're not special. It's like we're made for that, but it's easy to twist that and say, I must have it. I must have it at all costs, and I'm going to leave my family for months on end or maybe even just leave them, so I'm going to go chase my destiny out west in the mountains because God made me for that. He didn't make you for that. He didn't. He made you to enjoy beauty. And this is called an over-desire. We could do this with so many things, with music, with pleasure, with food, you know, like uh, back through the lust of the flesh. Like we say, oh, that one drink of alcohol is good. It's warm. It's, it's, we're made to enjoy that. Fine. Now I must have it. More, more, more. You're not made for that. That's an addiction. That's an over-desire of the flesh. Over-desire of the flesh, over-desire of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. This is approval, acceptance, admiration, praise, something I gotta have from other people. Nothing wrong with admiration. It's fine. We're, we're made to even to, do, to encourage each other and to appreciate encouragement. To have to have that. Have to have that approval. To create your own brand for everybody else in your world is dangerous. You know, my profession is really bad about this. 
We can just stand up and talk to people every week. And the temptation, like, I want you to think well of me, is toxic. Hey, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. This is a deep structure of the world. Genesis 3. This is, you know, Adam and Eve have been given reign of everything. So go build it, enjoy it, I'll enjoy it with you. Eat it, whatever you want, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know the story, perhaps Satan comes to Eve and says, yeah, I don't know if God said that exactly. And he convinces her that it's a good idea. But look at her internal motivation that's happening as she takes. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, ooh. That it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the, the eyes. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. I'll be like God. That's the boastful pride of life. Satan is not creative. Like only different in the expression of these things. So she took the fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. We have to be aware that so much of culture is underwriting the, our flesh that's in subtle rebellion against the, the loving authority of Jesus. And so I would encourage you, if you think, when you're thinking about self-control, this ingredient, which is woven through all this other aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, to consider your inputs. What are we bringing into our life? And uh, for me, I have to be very careful of the entertainment that I bring into my life. You know why? For me, like uh, an example is I, it does not do my soul well to watch like revenge movies. There's a genre of movie like just basically revenge. You justify all kinds of terrible things because you're taking revenge. You know why I don't like this? Because I really like this. And I, part of my own sin pattern and anger, I like the feeling that comes from being a little bit angry and being, uh, you know, live identifying vicariously through the, through the uh, protagonist in those movies. I like, that. I like the feeling that comes from that. It's a feeling of power. It's a feeling of adrenaline. It's a lust of the, lust of the flesh. Now you're different maybe, maybe not, but you're different probably. You're, you're broken in your own way. We have to be aware, what do we bring into our life that's actually underwriting our flesh? Because it's working against us. Um, and the reason this is important is because this isn't just for us. Self-control is for the sake of others in our life. I'm not going to read this whole passage. We've read it many times, Galatians 5. But just if we look at those aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, they require, all require a redirection of self-control, right? Not hating requires, uh, uh, I'm sorry, loving requires not hating. Patience requires, no, I'm not going to be impatient. Being gentle says, I'm not going to be harsh. It's a re redirecting of affections towards something. And I ought to have mentioned this more consistently through this whole series, but none of this is individual only. I mean, yes, you're becoming the one, let's say, that becomes more gentle. But wh so what? If you live in a room, in an isolated chamber, and if you're in, a, if you're in, a, in prison in a deep isolation for your whole life. It doesn't really matter if you're gentle or not. It's not just for us. You may feel warm and fuzzy and gentle on the inside, so what? Who benefits from gentleness? The people around us. 
All of these are communal aspects. Your family, now that you're gentle, their benefit, your friends, your church community, all this fruit of the Spirit is for others. And this actually was the impetus of Jesus as well. In his high priestly prayer, he says he directs his affections and loves toward the Father for the sake of others. In John 17, Jesus praying. On the last night, he says, and for their sakes, the apostles' sakes, I sanctify myself so that they may also be sanctified in truth. Then he says, I'm not just asking for them, I'm asking for everyone who will believe in their word. That's you. So Jesus, in his last night, prays as, Father, I am exercising self-control, I'm directing my affections, and I have it all of my life, and will continue for the next few hours of my life, directed towards you for the sake of others, for the sake of you guys. Jesus exercised self-control for you so that you would enjoy the benefits of his life and death and resurrection. And then, right after that prayer, they go out, he goes to another place and prays. These words we cover often here, Luke 22, and Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, redirection, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That's a medical condition called hematohydrosis where you sweat drops of blood from the intensity of the stress. It wasn't easy for Jesus to to redirect, but he did for your sake and mine. And that light that's, that's directed toward others is now being reproduced in us by the Spirit, sometimes in spite of us. So that's toward others. And think about it. What kind of church would we like to have? Think of, think of it if we were, let's just think of the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, the unfruit of the Spirit. But wouldn't this be a great description of a church full of people who are unloving, negative, tumultuous, impatient, attacking, twisted, undependable, harsh, and captive to their own whims? Well, maybe. You might think, I think I experienced that. Okay, well, um, by God's grace, he is moving us in the opposite direction because this fruit is given for each other. That's why it is good. Why is it needed? Because we are deeply conflicted. Why is it hard? Because our world underwrites and encourages it all the time, a lack of self-control. Why is it good? Because it blesses others, not to mention ourselves. And why is it possible? Well, because of the power of Jesus. Titus 2, this is what Megan read in the introduction. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's Jews and Gentiles together, not every single person in the world, but not just Jews. So it brought salvation. Salvation has been brought to us. We start from a secure position. Doing this from a position of security in him. uh, The grace of God appeared. This is talking about Jesus who appeared. That means he's appearable. He was able to be seen with eyes because he was and is a person who knows what it is to stand in this world and have in the middle of the storm of this world exercise self-control and redirect and rightly order loves and desires. Remember the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Think about Satan's temptations of Jesus in the desert you and I don't rank high enough to get personally tempted by Satan. Sorry. You know, we're just not that important. 
This is temptation unlike we've ever experienced. Therefore, he knows how to help us in lesser temptations, even though they seem like great temptations to us. After 40 days of fasting, Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread, lust of the flesh. He showed him all the splendor of the kingdoms of the world and said, these can be yours now if you worship me. Those are two visual words there, show and splendor, lust of the eyes. And he said, why don't you throw yourself off the pinnacle of a temple where everybody can see and angels will capture you and right now they will worship you, the boastful pride of life. And Jesus over and over again responded by the word of God with no, 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 so he could respond to you, yes, yes. And this is the pathway. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just a couple words there to take note of training. Training. Take some time, effort, and we fail and repeat. Have you ever trained for anything? Trained for a marathon, half marathon, competition, spelling bee, singing competition, whatever. You didn't just wake up and do it. Training, it takes time, it takes strategy, it takes knowing yourself, knowing the competition. Training, it takes effort. In this present age, this is where Jesus intends for us to bear fruit, where the Spirit intends to cultivate fruit. Not taking us out of this world, but right here. In this world, awash in the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, and then waiting patiently, leaning forward, feeling that longing in us that nothing in this world will bring completeness. If you want to remove the over from the over desires, we just get clear on the fact that nothing, even the good gifts, will bring the completeness for which we're made. Except one thing. Verse 14. Who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He gave himself. The, thing, the only thing I really remembered from Frozen, that I started looking back like, what is this? Was the end. I don't know how the writers got this past the editors. In the end, there's the, uh, and the antagonist Hans, he's the real bad guy. Uh, Elsa has seen the, seen the air of her ways, but they can't seem to change. And Hans is about to destroy everything with ice. It's a kid's movie. But, um, and Anna, the sister, has the opportunity to be rescued by her uh, beau, what's his name? Kristoff. She's running toward him, and she realizes that her sister's in trouble, about to be killed by Hans. And she comes back and jumps in between them just at the time that Hans is bringing the sword down on Elsa. And she ends up, because of where she, proximity, she gets immediately frozen as if dead. And as soon as Hans's sword touches her hand, this is what I don't know how they got by the editors. She breathes one breath, one final breath. She breathes her last in self-sacrifice to save her sister. And Elsa, upon seeing that, is transformed. The one in love has given her life for her. And that is the, the, the pathway to seeing, to, to away from her self-focus and toward self-control and love. 
It's the one who gave himself for us to secure us. So you're gonna fight for self-control and you know what? You're gonna fail <laughs> a lot. You know why? Wretched man that you are, wretched woman that you are. Here's the good news. He is holding on to you. I have given this illustration before, but it's happened again, so I'll do it again. Our second grandchild is about eight or nine months old. He was over this weekend, and you know he's at that point where he realizes that if you're holding him and he falls, that's bad for him. He's a little bit scared of heights, right? So he's holding on really tight. Tight enough to hold on if you let go? No, because he's like eight months old. He can't hold on. He's weak. Doesn't matter. You know why? Because grandpa's strong. Grandma's strong. The fact that reality is we're holding on to him far stronger than he's holding on to us. You will seek to hold on to the Lord. You will do. You will attempt to strive and bear love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and you will fail and you will be held on to. That's the gospel, friends. And from that radically secure position, Jesus can come to you and say, hey, let's walk into the life I died to give you, including self-control. Now, where do we need to examine it? You're secure. Let's fight together against this. Let, me, let us walk into the life I died to give you. Part of the reason we come to the table each week is that we just forget it. We think we're actually the nine-month-old holding on for life and that's sustaining us. That's folly. We have one who sustains us and then calls us into life. Part of that life is seeing what's there and then with him walking into freedom. If you're in Christ, this table is open to you. I'm gonna pray. Invite you to come to the table. 